welcome to the first episode of Yunam Youth Podcast Series. Today we have a very special topic, a, top, a podcast on the issues of family violence and abuse in Malaysia. Family violence occurs in every community, it has profound impact on every person involved, and it's an absolute obstacle to achieving equality, development, especially for children and youth. Today we have a very special guest, someone I have had the privilege to know over the years. This is Mariam Lee from Yunam Youth talking to Melissa Ak here of WAO on a very special topic on family violence and abuse in Malaysia. As an activist for gender equality and children's human rights, Melissa advocates for the implementation of the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, also known as CIDO, and CRC, the Convention of Rights of Children in Malaysia. She has worked on, on access to justice issues by training judges, lawyers, and prosecutors. She has written a court process guidebook and videos for sexual violence survivors. I'm sure we will get into all that later on with Melissa. Before joining an NGO, she was a federal counsel and deputy public prosecutor at the Attorney General's Chambers for almost 10 years. Welcome. Hi, Mariam. Um, and thank you, UNAM, for this uh, invitation. And how are you today? I'm good. I'm curious a little bit before we go into the, the meat of the discussion. Could you tell us a little bit about the work you do at the WAO? Yeah, um, thank you. So Women's Aid Organization, we've started since 1982, um, which makes us quite old, actually. Uh, our core service is on case management, especially supporting uh, survivors of domestic violence throughout uh, the process from the incident itself, to um, the justice system and other forms of empowerment and reintegration into society. So building on that, uh, there's also the range of work on advocacy, which is uh, applying to legislative reform and also in tandem with that, conducting festival, which is what I do, which is to make sure that practices are more in line with the law and human rights. So that is the range of uh, more or less what women's state organization does. And in there is a little bit on what I do as well, together with my capacity building team. So you're not just uh, you're not just focused on legislation. You're also doing uh, the 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 activity itself uh, with the with with the centers. Yeah. So basically, within case management itself, there's some aspects regarding how the law is supposed to apply to access the rights of a survivor. So yeah. that is where usually I try and assist based mm -hmm. on the realities on the ground uh, that we see. So because uh, capacity building is directly with communities, including uh, single women, uh, girls, there's a Girls for Goals network. So from this range of uh, live realities, we try and inform and advise uh, the approaches that we do. So it's sort of intelligent, so whenever someone tries to access um, hospitals or the police station and things like that, we do interlink with our uh, incredible social workers who handle the case from start to finish. Oh wow! Sounds um, sounds really like a like a lot of work because you're not only um, setting the legislative landscape. Uh, we'll speak more on live realities uh, later. <laughs> I would like to actually uh, ask Melissa to. Um, paint the legislative picture 
when it comes to family violence and abuse, uh, what are the uh, legal protections uh, for people who have gone through this? Okay, so if we're talking about family violence, it can also be known as domestic violence. So within Malaysia, the law that applies would be the Domestic Violence Act 1994, mm -hmm. um, which starting from the year 1999 has defined domestic violence as any act of violence. So this could be whether it's physical violence, yeah. whether it's violence that affects you psychologically or mentally, and various forms of action. It can be verbal, it can be even in forms of financial control or social isolation that is inflicted on um, a victim or a survivor by another party. And this can cause uh, many types of injuries or distress. So when we say domestic violence act, what does domestic mean? It basically covers people who are in marital relationships or blood relationships. So for example, if you're a spouse um, and the other party is also your spouse or a former spouse, um, parties who are parents and children or other extended family members, whether adopted or by a blood relationship, and this includes also um, those that are in fact, meaning you went through a religious or customary marriage, but you didn't register the marriage. Mm. Unfortunately, however, in Malaysia, we don't cover intimate partner violence in the form of people who are not married. So girlfriend and boyfriend or fiancés are not covered. So that's one law that applies. Oh, okay. Wow. So the law actually only protects people in marital relations. Yeah, or blood relationships as in siblings and so forth, yeah. Okay, okay, that's interesting. Um, well, uh, could you also uh, tell us a little bit uh, about how then does the legislation, this piece of legislation that we have, uh, protect people on the ground in, you know, with the live realities that you mentioned earlier? Okay, so imagine once again, the Domestic Violence Act, let's say it applies over someone called Nina. Mm. So if Nina had faced a situation of violence in all the various examples that I gave just now, um, so the actual act of violence itself can be a crime under another law, which is the penal code, for example. But um, Nina doesn't want the violence to happen again, yeah. but she's not sure whether she wants to lodge a police report. So the law that applies uh, could be the Domestic Violence Act has a new provision called an Emergency Protection Order or the EPO. So now the EPO, how does it help Nina? Nina can um, try and request for this uh, order to protect herself from the violence happening again uh, from the Social Welfare Department or in Malaysia we call this JKM. So for an emergency protection order, Nina does not need to file a police report. She can show a situation where she has been physically harmed or there's a threat to physically harm her. For example, a threat to kill her uh, by using like a knife. So these are examples of one order that is within the Domestic Violence Act. There are also other orders, for example, an IPO in, or interim protection order is meant to prohibit any other forms of violence while a case is being investigated by the police. But this sort of order, you have to lodge a police report. So that's one example regarding orders. So the point uh, what, of what I'm trying to say is these orders 
under the law are supposed to pre prohibit the repetitive nature of violence because family violence or domestic violence usually when a person comes forward to report or to inform another party that is not the first time it happens and then after jkm where do they go okay so with the order so let's say um the order is served on the party who was violent and the uh, jkm had advised the person so if nothing happens maybe you can say you go through the honeymoon period of the cycle of violence there is no further incident of violence right however sometimes uh, tensions escalate and the violence happens again for example uh, in this situation nina again can bring her order and request that the social welfare department or jkm uh, lodge a report or contact the police so that it becomes a violation of an order and arrest can be affected. Okay. So usually the orders that are issued, uh, the first one was via JKM. The interim protection order will be issued by a court, usually by the magistrate's court. And when you breach an order by the court prohibiting you from um, committing violence against another person, then the police can arrest you. And you can also be charged of um, breaching the order and of committing the the second violence. Okay. Uh, how long does this whole process usually take, Melissa? Okay, so just now going back to the emergency protection order. So because the word is emergency, mm -hmm. so it um, signifies the urgency of the situation where the order is supposed to be issued within 24 hours and it's supposed to apply to seven days. So that is the cooling off period or the warning period right. so, um, to try to attempt to break the cycle of violence. Mm -hmm. Second um, example of what is the interim protection order is during investigations. And as we all know, police investigations can be very, um, there have been a case of where it was investigated in 24 hours and the case was charged in court within that time. So that was the fastest case that I know of. However, we also know there have been cases where investigations have taken years. So um, to the point of gathering the evidence or just the case has no progress. So I don't have one um, answer for you, Mariam. It depends on the facts and circumstances of the case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it really does. Um, uh, Melissa, in your experience, um, what are the kind of women you talk to whenever they go through this a very difficult journey of reporting someone who has harmed them? Yeah, that, that's a very good question and a question that we usually get asked. Yeah. So, number one, if we imagine the entire country, there's actually research that shows mm -hmm. it could be anyone beside you because the prevalence of intimate partner violence in Malaysia is around 8% amongst all ever partnered women. So imagine uh, within, if 8% of the entire population, that could be anyone that you know from whatever background and from whatever uh, social socioeconomic circumstances. Yeah. However, there are some uh, research regarding risk and protective factors. So there isn't one uh, simple answer regarding who is more uh, affected but some of the factors that they found in common were, for example, uh, certain areas where you live in, the ethnicity or the level of education or 
exposure to other forms of prior abuse. So this, uh, what I mean here is uh, within the family, the history of violence, and also um, how patriarchal the family or situation is. So for example, yeah. in areas where you can find attitudes that condones patriarchal supremacy, mm. where perhaps it's normalized or it's justified for husbands to hit wives or to accept that it's a way um, to teach no. wives and, and things like that. So in these situations, women uh, who accept these situations would have less social support. And therefore, um, there is a bad cycle where they would be more inclined uh, to face situations of domestic violence. But as you can see, um, this sort of research, I don't just have one simple answer. Yeah. You have to look at the circumstances. So now applying it to the COVID situation, one thing that is strikingly high is also the correlation with unemployment rates yeah. and uh, really pressing socioeconomic conditions. And this is has added to the issue of power and control. So uh, what I'm trying to say is in families where you see there may be a partner who's trying to regain power um, because of pressing economic concerns, you don't have money, you're trying to have power and you're trying to regain it by beating up your family member or your spouse. So in situations of families like this, mm -hmm. um, more of the women are coming forward that they are increasingly stuck in uh, the homes because also that they don't have any access to financial means. So what I'm trying to say is perhaps um, people across all sectors may face family violence, but people with other um, intersecting oppressive issues would be the ones who would suffer more or would have more layers of family violence. So these are the patterns that WAO is seeing. And mind you, we are seeing a 250% um, increase in the amount of calls or texts to our hotlines. So the increase from for the year 2020, you mean, within within the first year of the pandemic? Yeah, so um, what I'm trying to say is the comparison of the numbers that we had in 2019, which is pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. And in comparison to COVID times, uh, it's a stark contrast, it's 250%. Right. And back to your question just now, whom that we see most often or those who suffer the most are also those who have the least. So right. these are the women that we are speaking to now and perhaps those who are in the upper tier of um, their finances are able to have more resources or support systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Melissa, I've actually come across um, a situation where I help someone to go to the police report, uh, to, the, to the police station to file a case of abuse and abusive husband. But the moment she finishes her report, she revoked it because uh, the police officer uh, said that if you go through with this, your husband will be taken away. And because she doesn't want the husband to be taken away, that she withdrew the report completely. Have you come across something like this? Uh, is this a common thing that happens? Yes, uh, this goes to the very root of uh, family violence or domestic violence itself. Because as I mentioned, if you imagine a cycle, so yeah. from when the incident happens, and then uh, they may after the report is made, yeah. and then they all attempts to try to de-escalate the situation 
or try to persuade or promise certain things. So yeah. sometimes the promise is not made or the threat is not made by the perpetrator himself. It could be made by other parties in uh, your situation. It was the police to cause uh, the person, the survivor, to change her mind. Yeah. And the cycle is normal. And through the cycle itself, there is a variety of reasons why someone would have doubts. Imagine if it's a loved one and we are trying to lodge a police report against someone that we love, that we promise to uh, be together for our entire lives. So in this situation, that's why um, earlier when I mentioned regarding the emergency protection order, perhaps the situations where you may decide to get a protection order, but it's more of a warning or cooling off period or advice to yeah. the perpetrator rather than the police process because there is a big reluctance to have someone that you love to get arrested. Exactly. Yeah, so perhaps uh, the first warning might work or the advice that uh, perpetrators are or can be made accountable that someone else is watching, maybe at the first stage. But when the case repeats itself, um, we need to try and come forward and support um, the, the person that you said because uh, they may be unsure of the support system. Because yeah. until we walk in their shoes, we do not know what are the realities that she would have to face. Exactly. I, I mean, it, it, it wasn't a judgment on her choice, the choice that she made that night. But it was just something I really noted because of so much pressure that she was under at the time. She was already, you know, she was already out of... She's just at her wit's end, okay? And then the the husband the husband never came to the police station of course, but like the 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 sister of the husband came to actually talk her down to to actually talk her into withdrawing the report. Yeah, you're talking about support system, right? We we should also be asking about support system for who the survivor or the perpetrator. Yeah, so unfortunately, despite the fact that 91% of victims are female, mm, we yeah. see more support for the other percentage of the perpetrator. Yes. And very, uh, people are very quick to side with uh, perpetrators instead of the survivor. And it is uh, very easy to see the survivor situation as a problem and to want to try and solve uh, the thing as uh, trying to save a marriage, for example. Exactly. And um, th this is where what I was trying to mention just now, regarding yeah. which areas in which these patriarchal norms are accepted, mm -hmm. then the repetitiveness or the increasing uh, amount of domestic violence uh, or family violence would increase. Uh, mind you, many of these situations, uh, if we're talking about sisters or brothers who have been enablers of violence, perhaps it has been a cycle since earlier on maybe it is learned behavior because this is also a pattern within family violence so you will continue into adulthood and enabling someone perhaps if you have seen this behavior before because no one is born uh, an abuser no yeah. one is uh, born to understand that family violence is a norm until it has been taught so this is what we need to ask ourselves within our communities in malaysia um, because actually, according to UNICEF, the when you grow up in a violent home, the behavioral and psychological consequences is equally as devastating for children, even though it's not the children who are beaten up. Exactly. So you can grow up uh, with this, and some people become perpetrators themselves 
but some people uh, face impairment or issues, including within uh, relationships. Some may copy the patterns of behavior that they have seen as well. Yeah, it's a generational thing. It really yeah. can be broken. Um, so when, when uh, let's move the topic a little bit. Uh, when you talk about, uh, you know, violence between uh, people in a relationship, usually, you know, it's, it's somewhat manageable if it's only between two of them. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit when children are involved? What are the dynamics that changes uh, the, the situation? Yeah, so as, as the child or the children. Yeah, as I mentioned, um, there are the root cause for all forms of violence, especially gender based violence, is usually power and control. Mm -hmm. So the impact on children, if they are observing a situation of power and control between the parents, and some of those situations of power and control that had escalated to violence, um, as mentioned, can have severe psychological consequences on children. Children who view or expose to violence um, can show po post-traumatic stress disorder. The younger you are, the more developmental impairment you may, save, uh, you may face. Old children as well, you can um, have situations where teachers have observed that they can be labeled as troublemakers, but actually the acting out has uh, something to do with the family situation at home. Mm. It can be uh, exhibited in forms of depression, anxiety, or even substance abuse. There is a lot of research that shows children that live with domestic violence are more likely to grow up also to be directly abused themselves. So the cycle, uh, vicious cycle keeps continuing itself and for the children, sometimes the power and control can exhibit in also other forms or layers in the family. So the number one person who holds the power in the family can beat another person. And then the other person can also um, go down the rungs of power. And then the children are the second layer of the person being abused. So it's compounded is what I'm trying to say. And I, I can't say anything good about um this issue because of how serious it is. But um, for Malaysia, another really concerning pattern is in terms of sexual abuse mm -hmm. that is perpetrated by family members. Um, I really want to emphasize that we should not forget that it can be layered. Family violence can come in the form of sexual violence and when it's perpetrated by a family member, which is more than um, with around 50% of all cases that are brought to court against girls are those cases of rape and incest that is perpetrated by fathers or stepfathers, which actually also is a form of family violence or family abuse. So these are the layers of what we are uh, facing with. And it's if you imagine how hellish it will be for a child or a teenager within that situation. You know, I think, I think uh it literally just occurred to my mind that domestic violence is, is not just violence between a husband and a wife. Because that is the dominant image when people think of domestic violence. But now we are discussing, you know, something beyond that, also family violence, right? And when you when you mention uh, the, uh, what do you call it? Inappropriate sexual behavior towards children in a family would also be considered family violence. 
it literally just occurred to my mind just now. I don't know how that happened. I don't. I did. I just feel like it's a reflection of how normative this is, and how we are. We are. We have been going about our lives not aware of these things. Yeah, and, and if you imagine on the ground, it's not just to you. Um, when we talk about laws, we always have to talk about the law in action and how the law and the practice of it is made into a culture. So um, we have even had to point this out to um, enforcement agencies. So for example, we have, we have had to ask why a child, if they had faced uh, sexual violence by a family member, why they can't get uh, an interim protection order in their own name, in their own right. Because sometimes the confusion is said, oh, that one is under the Child Act or the Sexual Offences right. Against Children Act. But we also had to point out that the perpetrator is a family member. Therefore, it's also family violence. So this also doesn't occur to whether the police or the social welfare department. So I don't blame you for not, not being able to. It really, it's, it really, really, really blows my mind because otherwise, you know, if, if I mean, the listeners who are listening to this uh, right now, you know, uh, pro, um, very likely a lot smarter than me. But then again, I would say that, you know, I am <laughs> the average Malaysian. <laughs> Who who pretty much goes about my life uh, pretty you know pretty oblivious to these things and it really is uh it really is a, a nice awakening but also not so nice in the sense that what it means um and then another thing is that Melissa I think uh maybe because we also don't think that this might happen to us like we we don't think that we need to know because you know. How could I be? How could I ever be in that situation, right? But in reality, in life, you never know. You really never know. Yeah, like the the research I just cited is one in nine, so eight percent, right? So in that situation, it could be anyone. It, it might not be you. It might not be your friend. Might not be your family member. But I'm pretty sure at least a neighbor, at least someone else in your housing area, yeah. um, someone else in your village would have been likely to have faced uh, intimate partner violence. And mind you, the research that was done um, was not even uh, taking into account East Malaysia, Sabah and Sarawak. And number two, it did not even um, address yet cases for underreporting, which um, the researchers had highly suspected due to the stigma within the context of our society. After, like you said that we had this law since 1994, right? Yes. So, um, even uh, all these years, so 1994, there will be almost 30 years now. After 30 years of the of the Domestic Violence Act being passed uh, in the parliament, we still struggle uh, with with the uh, with that understanding from society. Would you say so? Yes, because uh, once again, a law is only on paper until it is made uh, or given force within, you know, structures and mechanisms that are supposed to enforce it. And more importantly, within culture. So if um, there is tolerance towards violence, if um, the nature of violence has been normalized, if uh, even both parties has accepted violence as a norm and uh, as 
something that comes with marital disputes or disharmony and not seen as a crime, then um, it doesn't, the law we would say doesn't really work to sit into every family or every situation or every uh, enforcement agency. Then uh, it is not achieving its objective. So um, I'm not trying to say it is all bad news. We have had very successful cases and survivors have gone on to become advocates themselves. But sometimes it's very dependent on, for example, the luck of the draw. Um, I would also like to credit they are very um, supportive officers in the government, for example, or in collaboration with NGOs. And special credit goes to the one-stop crisis center at hospitals, for example, mm. who usually do not have a tolerant behavior towards uh, violence and they treat all patients or uh, survivors uh, in terms of having to receive um, treatment. However, yeah. I will just go back to saying, if we keep saying uh, it's part of teaching someone or controlling behavior is accepted in pop culture, within dramas, uh, subservience and patri patriarchal values are uh, really upheld, then whatever law that we pass, it will not get its true objective or its true impact. Sorry, that was a bit long. <laughs> no, no, no. This is the kind of thing that we want. We want to come out really because uh, the law will will always be there. It's a reference point, right? Uh, right now, until someone actually needs it, most likely we will not be we will not be uh, confronted with it. But in reality, we are actually confronted with patriarchy every day. The very culture that enables. Uh, uh, gender-based violence, uh, not just within families, but also all aspects of life. Um, having, I mean, you you also train, right? You you also train uh, public uh, service officers uh, in this area in terms of uh, what what exactly that 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 goes into the training into sensitive sen sensitive sensitization. Yeah, sensitizing okay. the public service uh, about the about the issue. Yeah, so we work with many segments of society, but perhaps I will just give one example first. Um, one of the key area is regarding persons who are supposed to enforce the law. Right. So we do train police officers and the social welfare department in terms of the three R's. So the first R, whether they can actually recognize all the forms of family violence or domestic violence, especially those that are um, defined within the Domestic Violence Act. So that recognize, for example, faces a lot of obstacle in terms of mental or psychological abuse. It is uh, not usually recognized because it, it is not seen um, and diagnosed so easily. Uh, but the second are that um, they are supposed to be able to understand after they can recognize all the various forms or manifestations of violence is to respond, to right. actually take action in situations of violence. And the third R would be also to refer whenever further supportive aspects is needed. So that's when I mentioned um, and credited the hospital, for example, the one-stop crisis center, it has to be referred or linked subsequently with all other support uh, mechanisms, including if uh, relevant situations of what happens in the justice system. Yeah. Um, and um, also within their societal support. So when you mention your friend just now, imagine a person who um, has been turned out of 
her own house and uh, doesn't have any form of income. So all this have to come together in a form of uh, multi-sectoral approaches. But in the trainings as well, um, linked to your question just now, the cycle of abuse, understanding rape culture, how to break the cycle because um, sometimes there is compassion fatigue whenever they see the survivor not wanting to go ahead with the police report and they don't understand the causes uh, behind it and they judge the survivor. So these are the contents of um, the training as, as what you have asked. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Rebecca. Um, I mean, <laughs> I was just, I was just uh, curious on that one. I know it wasn't in the list of questions. And you know what, Melissa, I just realized that I did not introduce myself at the beginning of this podcast. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but that's all right. Uh, we can we can look into that uh, later. But I think as um, as far as the discussion has gone, we have gone through uh, quite a lot, especially on the legis uh, on the legal mechanisms and also the official uh, protocols as uh, as a case uh, as a case happens, and then uh, where do, where does the case from there? Um, as a as we come to almost to the end of this uh, of this recording, uh, what would be what what how would you say would be the mechanisms to protect survivors? Not just legislation, but also other non-legislative um, methods of protection for survivors against family violence or abuse. And then perhaps your best advice on on for Malaysians on how to take action. Yeah, so for uh, women's aid organization, we try and emphasize on community selamat. So what, whatever that we mentioned regarding safe communities, it has to be a cross-sectoral effort. It has to be everyone. So if you imagine within one ecosystem, mm -hmm. from who is the immediate in the immediate vicinity of a survivor, everyone has to play their role of what I mentioned just now, the three R's, in recognizing, responding, and referring cases. And because if we look at uh, the recognition or the root factors behind the complexity of family violence, there is no one single answer, but a multitude of approaches. So we need, number one, how do we address from the start patriarchal norms uh, within educational systems, within even uh, how do you encourage more gender equitable norms in before um, parties get married, within even curriculum in premarital courses, in making sure that our community leaders or family members all know that violence is not acceptable. And this, um, I would really, really say that I'm very encouraged by how youth or children or adolescents are trying to speak against the cycle of violence of the previous generations and improve help-seeking behavior, um, calling out um, situations where even, let's say, boyfriend or girlfriends are norming situations of family violence that could worsen in situations um, when they are married and so forth. So be a neighbor, be a good family member, be a good friend, and always uh, try and encourage your uh, the person who is the survivor that they are not alone that there is a lot of us and we can all do this from our own homes to ensure everyone enjoys freedom from violence. 
Thank you so much, Melissa, for that great summary, really. Um, I would like to um, I would like to bring the discussion to a close, if that's okay with you, Melissa. Uh, do you want to add something before before? Was there anything that was missed out? Uh, I'm not sure if you want any case examples or Nina just now was enough. Uh, we we could we could do with some case examples. Okay, so just um, regarding a COVID-related uh, case example. So because there's many situations, um, as mentioned, during MCO situations, you're trapped in your home, you may lack financial support. So for example, as recent as last November, um, the police had detained a 16-year-old girl. She was trying to leave KL without a permit during the COVID-19 uh, MCO period. Okay. So the police asked her several questions and then they discovered the girl was running away. She was trying to get to her mother in Kedah mm. because her father, who actually gained custody of her a year ago, had been sexually abusing her for several months. The girl um, also told the police she had tried to kill herself to uh, be free from the situation. So these are examples of cases where it could be compounded because in this situation also this is not um, a case of someone who is within the uh, top tier of financial means, which we, we, we could say that. And there's a layer of sexual violence, there's a layer of family violence, um, and she is also missing um, her, the support from her mother. And in the meantime, also affected by MCO within COVID-19 times. Okay. So this is, um, if anyone can imagine, that is just one case. And we can't say enough how urgent it is for everyone to provide support uh, for other situations of other 16-year-old girls such as this. So exactly. that is the case example that I gave. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's not just theory. It's not just something you hear about on the radio or something that people tweet about or write Facebook statuses about. It's it's real. It actually is happening in the, in, in the real life. And... <laughs> it's happening more often or more frequently than, than we think you know um, and I think that's the scary part the scary part is that we don't know the real uh, numbers yeah thank you I think that summarizes it we, we don't know but therefore we need to step up when the time comes and we hear of any situation happening Thank you, uh, Melissa. Would you like to say a little bit about how to reach out to WAO for our listeners who here who might want to find out about the work that you do? Yeah, so we Women's Aid Art on Twitter is one of the um, easier areas for you to try and reach us. We have a Think I Need Aid helpline. So if you Google Tina and WAO, you can easily access all of the numbers. Um, we are in service 24 hours. We have um, methods of WhatsApp where you don't have to speak to anyone or a crisis support officer, but you also uh, would be able to call our number and speak to someone. And I think that would be easiest if you look for Women's Aid Organization social media um, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook, and there would be explanation and step-by-step -step guidance. All the services are confidential 
and free of charge. And there is uh, no judgment or no pressure on the options that whether you're ready or not ready to take forward. We're just here to assist. Thank you, Melissa. Um, on behalf of Vietnam Youth, we really would like to express our gratitude for you being here today and sharing with us some very valuable information on how to address family violence and abuse in Malaysia in particular. Um, thank you so much for your work and the work of your team uh, on CEDAW and CRC and ensuring and uplifting the rights of women and children. Um, for more information about our podcast series and other exciting events, do follow Yunam Youth on Instagram at una.malaysia and visit our Facebook, United Nations Association of Malaysia. Thank you again and hope you join us for the next time. Yay! <laughs>